welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. This is the third episode in our look at John's Jesus, meaning the unique way Jesus is presented in John's Gospel. So far, we've looked at the nature of John, the idea of the Word as found in John, and other somewhat philosophical meanderings. In this episode, we're going to look at the identity of Jesus in John, specifically the I am sayings and what they reveal. Thank you for joining me. So where do we read I am? Here's a sample. I am. Do not be afraid. I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I am the light of the world. I am from above. Before Abraham was born, I am. I am the light of the world. I am he. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we've left the relative safety of the philosophy of religion and enter the more tangible world of Jesus the Christ, the great I Am of the New Testament. Along the way, we'll pick up a little helpful Greek, ponder the ways we can truly know God, and dabble in a little realized eschatology. More on that in a few minutes. It all begins with ego eimi. What is it other than the first-person singular present tense of the verb to be in Greek? It is a signpost, a marker that John has placed throughout his gospel to continually orient you to the identity of Jesus. He presents a complex picture, and as we learned in episode one of this series, more often than not, his statements lead to confusion and consternation. He is actively misunderstood, but then, just to help the reader, he drops an ego eimi. The first meaning, then, is directional. Looking again at the ego eimi list, we see that many of the attributes lead somewhere or guide us. The light of the world, the gate, the action of being a good shepherd, the directionality of the vine, always beginning at the source, and the most literal of all, the way, the truth, and the life. Indeed, from the earliest days, Jesus became known as the way, which was and is an important reminder for those of us seeking directionality in our lives. So the directional hint in the Greek, the I am, guides us through the early chapters, the orientation chapters, when we are getting a sense of Jesus and before his extended passion begins. And the signposts themselves are directional, giving us light and a way forward and even a little poke, or whatever it is that good shepherds do, to get the troublesome sheep to move in the right direction. And since we're celebrating our first bit of helpful Greek, we might as well talk about the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Bible. It was likely completed in the 2nd century BCE. It was certainly done in Alexandria, our new favorite city, and it was the working translation for New Testament writers and for our old friend Philo. 
and it even comes with a cool legend. King Ptolemy once gathered 72 elders, according to legend. He placed them in 72 chambers, each of them in a separate one, without revealing to them why they were summoned. He entered each one's room and said, Write for me the Torah of Moshe, your teacher. God put in the heart of each one to translate identically as all the others did. So goes the legend. So Septuagint means 70, as I said. It was the version of the Bible favored by those educated Greeks in Alexandria and the outlying places where early Christian writers were putting pen to parchment. And one of the most commonly known and most discussed passages in the Greek Septuagint was Exodus 3. So so let's hear a portion. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for for he was afraid to look at God. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. Now, a couple of things we should note from the readings. First, the burning bush is God's calling card, along with a quick lesson on divine human etiquette concerning footwear. Next, a summary introduction that begins with Ego Eimi. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and so on. God has barely started speaking, and already another trail of breadcrumbs begins. Having negotiated the terms under which Moses will help free the people, Moses' thoughts turn to the more pressing matter of the work-weary slaves themselves and the natural reaction that they will give to the news that one Midian goat herder will release them from the most powerful king on earth. Moses decides that he should at least be able to provide the name of this god, so he asks the question. I am who I am, God shoots back, then adds, tell them I am has sent you. Still, obviously playing with an answer in the divine mind, God tries a third time and says, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. 
So which is it? In spite of three answers, it is the first one that stuck, and since then scholars and believers have pondered the I am who I am, or simply the great I am, and how this name relates to our faith. Some translate it as I will be who I will be, or I am who I will be, and thus launched a thousand sermons, only some good. Nevertheless, the name takes on further life as the Tetragrammaton, the four letters we know as YHWH. So God has a name, and by tradition, Jews are not to say it, instead simply saying the name, or Adonai, meaning Lord. Christians have no such prohibition, so through the centuries we began to say Yahweh, simply adding vowels to the Tetragrammaton to make it pronounceable. So the name of our God is a bit of a riddle, except when a Judean peasant, who also happens to be God, starts using it and we hear it in a new way. Of course, with this new sense that when we meet Jesus, we are meeting the great I am, we have jumped a step in the usual order of things. In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have the general sense that the kingdom of God is coming. Yet this remains unclear with the counter-argument from Luke 17, when Jesus says, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, Uh, Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Fans of the King James Version will recall that Jesus says, the kingdom of God is within you, a much more satisfying translation. So the kingdom is coming, uh, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but John doesn't say much of anything about future time. Remember, he wants to talk about eternal life instead. So if we meet Jesus and we are meeting the great I am and the end of time has come, that is, there's nothing left to wait for since we already have the bread that came down from heaven and the living water, that means we'll never thirst again. This, just to make it sound scholarly, is called realized eschatology the sense that the promise at the end of time has already been fulfilled. The kingdom has come, we have eternal life, and this shall be the sign. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That's from John's prologue. But there is one more step on this journey with the great I Am, and it is described by Linwood Urban in that other most helpful book on theology, A Short History of Christian Thought. Urban concludes with a look at realized eschatology and John and references a kingdom that may be in our midst in the synoptics and describes the next step that is utterly unique to John. That would be a union with God. Urban, in a rather scholarly way, calls it an interpenetration of being, the extent to which John's Jesus merged with us, allowing us to become part of the life of God and allowing God to become fully part of ours. And the union for Urban is found in the I am statements. 
John 6.51 I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. From John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Out of context, these words, especially around his body and blood, seem outrageous, even offensive, unless you understand the flesh and blood are metaphor, uh, certainly for Holy Communion, and definitely for the style of relationship God wants to have with us. By ingesting God, by allowing God inside of us, the union is complete. And for those who don't like the metaphor and would rather know what this literally means, John can do that too. My prayer, Jesus says, is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's from John 17. For this final section, I want to take a trip down memory lane and the publication in 1988 of the Jesus Seminar's first book called The Parables of Jesus. You may already know the outline of the story. 150 scholars began gathering at the invitation of Robert Funk in 1985, sharing scholarship and trying to catch a glimpse of the authentic words of Jesus. In many ways, it was simply a continuation of what began as the quest for the historical Jesus, a term coined by theologian and missionary Albert Schweitzer to describe a movement that began in the late 1700s. These early biblical scholars began to try to uncover the authentic words and deeds of Jesus without centuries of tradition clouding the picture. One of the Early and most famous examples of this quest was the Jefferson Bible, where the third U.S. president literally took a knife to his Bible and cut out everything supernatural, leaving only some narrative and the ethical teachings of Jesus. Schweitzer published his landmark study in 1906, providing a systematic overview of all the quest literature to that point. Over the course of the 20th century, the quest waxed and waned and was fully reborn through Robert Funk's work. In many ways, it was part scholarship and part PR and part theological dynamite. Their work involved the controversial use of colored beads in voting for each passage to try to find a consensus on the authenticity of each passage. 
Black meant Jesus didn't say it. Gray meant it was an idea that may be consistent with Jesus, but he didn't say it. Pink means he said it in more or less these words, and red meant he said it. You you can imagine the shock when turning to the Lord's Prayer to find the words Our Father in red and the rest of the prayer split between black, gray, and pink. What do you do when you learn that 150 scholars agree that he didn't say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? I share all of this because John's Jesus and the words he speaks in the Bible are 99% black, according to the Jesus Seminar, and the reason is based on principles established by the group and consistent with the historical quest that began 200 years earlier. So here are some of the principles. Jesus would never refer to himself, so no I am statements. Uh, Jesus wouldn't explain himself or give the background to what he just said. Jesus would never identify himself outside his community, such as referring to the Jews outside of himself, when he was a faithful Jew. So how do we reconcile these principles with John's gospel? Enter the late Marcus Borg. Borg gave the best framework for John and John's Jesus when he formulated the idea of the pre- and post-Easter Jesus. Simply, it works like this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he would include the Gospel of Thomas, describe the Jesus of history, the man people met in first century Palestine. Uh, This is the pre-Easter Jesus. The post-Easter Jesus, the one described in John, is the Jesus of belief, the Jesus of the unfolding Christian church, and most importantly, the Jesus of religious experience. This is who Paul met on the road to Damascus, the post-Easter Jesus, who knocked him off his horse and said, Stop troubling my believers. It is also the Jesus of the resurrection appearances, grilling fish for his disciples and insisting that they feed my sheep. When we can see or experience both, the pre- and post-Easter Jesus, then we can gain a complete picture of him and can appreciate the Jesus found in John. Thank you for joining me. After Christmas, interesting timing, we'll pick up the story of John's Jesus once more and look at that extended passion narrative and have a lengthy look at atonement. All good stuff. In the meantime, Merry Christmas and all the best.